Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today I am with Ricky. How are you doing today? Good man. Happy to be here. It's been a while. Yeah, very good. Um, so the reason why I asked you to come on is uh, you do a lot of research, um, and that seems like your kind of your area of focus. And part of the reason I think you're going into medical school. But um, what I'd like to talk to you about is, uh, you know, updating our own skills. We have to read research papers, which is boring as hell. But how do you pick a good one in order to actually affect uh, your practice? Yeah, that's a, that's definitely a layered question, but I think the first thing is to really go to the basics and, and ask yourself, am I reading something that is a causative research paper or am I reading something that is a retrospective slash observational associative research paper? And that is probably the biggest hiccup that our community runs into is they'll read a paper, they'll send it around, they'll and they'll be like, look, we have to change this practice because uh, this data says so. Um, and then you go and you read the method section, you find out it's completely retrospective. So I'd say the first thing is to categorize this is, am I reading a you know randomized control trial? Am I reading uh, original research? Or am I reading someone who did chart analysis uh, on one type of patient population and then they make a really big claim? Okay. Um, um, maybe if you could just quick go through, like, what are the, what is exactly the difference? Yeah. So, um, so like a retrospective observational study is, is what we did with like lethal diamond, right? So we did what's called a narrative literature review. And what that means is we surveyed all the available literature at the time that was available on things that had, um, buzzwords. So we searched the medical literature for things like hypocalcemia blood hemorrhage uh, from this date range to that date range. And we collected all those papers, we read them, we reported their results that the those authors found, and then we made a narrative discussion around it and said, hey, maybe we should include calcium as the fourth leg to something like the lethal triad. Now that's an observational retrospective analysis of current data. It was not causative research. It is not causative research. The difference uh, where something would be original causative research would be if we did something like a single center or multi-center uh, ER or pre-hospital trial where we said upon admission, um, males and females age 18 to 35 who are diagnosed at the ER with hemorrhagic shock with based on X vital signs and X labs are going to receive calcium or a placebo and they're going to and the provider who's giving that medication is blinded to it and then we're going to see if that reduces mortality in a population and there would be a whole bunch of other stuff that goes into that but that would be something that could show causation depending on the power of the statistical analysis so there's other things that go into that but that's like those are two prime examples and kind of relevant examples to what's going on a lot in our current practices okay so you know, a retro, retrospective kind of analysis is maybe something how you form what needs to be researched, or at least gets you kind of in the ballpark of what the consensus thinks. And a um, 
uh, causative type study is something that is answering the question itself on how does it affect somebody or does it not? Yeah, I mean, um, how does it affect somebody or does it not? And and did we tr- did we actually prove it? We didn't just uh, associate it. You mm-hmm. know, we did the treatment uh, and and we we had a placebo. We had uh, some type of a control element um, in in real time versus looking back from 2000 to 2007 and saying, Hey, this, this just makes sense. Um, so yeah, that definitely hit it on the head. Okay. Um, so, you know, let's say we're looking for some kind of causative type research to answer our question, which narrows down the amount of research done a lot. Um, what other things are important when you're looking at a, should I believe this research or not? Yeah, I'd say so for any research. I'm, I'm going to say this for any type of publication, retrospective or prospective. The first thing that I like to do, I do like to read the introduction. Uh, so I, I like to see what they're what the authors are introducing and kind of what background information they found on the topic. But the place I spend the most time on any paper is the methods section. The methods is where you're going to find out really if this study is worth the salt or if it's bs or if it was just one of those things that somebody had to do to get a publication uh, and i find this all the time uh, in our community when pa- papers get sent to me you go it has a really fancy title it makes a huge claim a huge causative claim and then you go and read the method section it's like we retrospectively reviewed charts from 2000 to 2020 and you know it's like already it's it's, it's, it's observational Mm-hmm. Uh, the methods will also let you know what the inclusion criteria were, the exclusion criteria. Uh, it kind of will give you good insight if there's any co-founding variables, which may show that the authors were biased uh, in their research. It will talk about disclaimers uh, that the authors may have. So such things like financial disclosures or institutional disclosures, it'll tell you who's responsible for what of the research. It'll say how they conducted their statistical analysis. And then going from the method section, I then spend a lot of time in the results because the results are not opinionated. The results are just the objective facts that the authors found. Um, So between the introduction, the methods, and the results, I then form my own conclusion based off what the authors found because those are objective findings I have to report. And then I'll read the discussion last. And that's I read the discussion more so to have as weird as it sounds, a conversation (laughs) with, with what I just read. Maybe I'm you know, I form my opinion, I think of something, and then I go and I read the author's discussion because that's basically what that is. That's a conversation with the reader and them interpreting the data and explaining it and kind of letting you know where they want to take their research or what other things they find or why it's relevant. But I think the biggest mistake that our community makes and um, is that they'll read the title, which is usually super sexy. They'll read the abstract, which is super condensed and does not have to disclose any methods. And then maybe they'll read a conclusion. And the reason they do that is because that's what's free on PubMed or yeah. Facebook or Instagram. You know, that's where a lot of people are reading the research. So, and not a lot of people know how to read methods or know what the different statistical tests are and what they mean. So it's very easy to fall into the the headline trap. I'd say the the, the sexy title trap. Right, and I always fall into that. I got to admit, but. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, can you give us any kind of pointers as far as reading a method section on things to look for that says, hey, this is legit? 
Yeah, I, I would definitely say someone a method section that has clearly defined inclusion and exclusion criteria uh, that and, and the, a large enough sample size that uh, is effective for the statistics that they're trying to present. Uh, for example, in a mortality study, um, if somebody only comes in with a sample size of 10 and finds out that tying your shoes before doing CPR, you know, <laughs> reduces mortality in, in hospital, you know, like that's not a good sample size uh, to, to prove if any type of causation, right? It's too small of a sample to represent the larger population. So while that's a silly example, um, it, it, it's kind of just an easy way to explain it. Um, another thing I would say with the methods is Google the statistics if you're not familiar with it, you know, uh, and sometimes you have to wonder like, how come this author may be only reporting odds ratios and not P values or, you know, what are they, how do they get to their P value? What type of testing did they use to spit that out? You know, there's things like Fisher's exact test. There's a Nova test. There's all these different statistics and it can be pretty overwhelming and honestly, if you don't understand what those are and what they're deriving, it, it it will throw you off for what that study is even saying or what it even means, whether that variable is categorical, whether it's qualitative, whether it's quantitative and, and things like that. It's, it, it, it sounds super complicated, unfortunately, and it can be, um, but that's, that's effective reading. Um, and that's the only way to really do it. So I would, uh, really just take your time and think what did they did is there anything they left out as far as variables go and why if you're spun up on a topic well enough um or think if you were to do that study what would you would you do anything different or do you feel like they covered their basis um, hmm. and that's that's kind of how i do it and this came up very recently uh in some neuro papers where you know i felt the authors left out some key topics and then i you know i i asked around the uh, community i'm in for that and there are a lot of people agreed and we found that that was pretty much a, a very big variable to miss and that paper got very popular quick and like unless you read the method section and saw how they did their testing then you would just fall for the title once again right do you think some unscrupulous researchers uh, camouflage BS with their, the methods and the statistics. Oh yeah. I mean, the most famous example is, uh, jumping out of a plane without a parachute has a hundred percent survival rate. And then the method section was the plane was on the ground and it was like a five foot drop. So everybody that jumped five feet out of the plane lived, but the title was you jump out of a plane with no parachute and you won't die. Right. So that's like the, always the, that's the popular example in any like research course you take. Uh, so yeah, definitely. Um, and whether some people do it on purpose or not, it's, it's, you know, it's your work, you're passionate about it. Uh, you want to get your stuff across. And, uh, so I think there's incidental times where you inadvertently, uh, leave something out. And then obviously there's always that unfortunate truth where people definitely are bearing things or not, not doing them because they know it's going to skew their data. Right. Um, do you have any kind of pointers as far as the uh, results? Yeah, just take your time. Uh, the results can be overwhelming sometimes because there's so many like parentheses and then brackets within parentheses. And, you know, you'll get a P value into an odds ratio into something else and confidence intervals are there. 
And so there's just a lot, there'll be, a, there's a lot of numbers to dig through. I just take your time, go look at the figures. If they refer to the figure, truly understand the X and Y axis of that figure and, and what it's trying to tell you. A good friend of mine gave me a method to read any type of graph. And it's like, he's, you know, he starts the title first. He goes to the Y axis, which is the dependent variable. It's the thing that's going to change. And then he looks at the X axis and then sees that that's the independent variable and, and that's fixed, you know, that'll never change. So, um, that's for like some charts and stuff. And, but for graphs that are like demographics, really understanding what these demographics are trying to tell me, understanding who my population is, who was excluded from the population. And it's just, it's just taking your time because there's just so much data being thrown at you. Uh, and it's very attractive to just breeze through that part and go to the discussion because the authors are giving you the answer. Uh, but remember that the discussion is where they're discussing their opinion, you know, mainly discussing their opinions about what they found rather than you formulating your own opinion. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess, uh, in your experience with medics, um, and probably physicians as well, you know, when they're finding research, what is the biggest kind of trap that they fall into? Uh, I'd say the biggest trap to, oh, you're asking to conduct research or read it? No, reading it. Oh, reading it. The title, the title yeah. and abstracts for sure. Um, the, another big one that I find with medics specifically is they don't know the difference between human and animal study, uh, which is totally fine because it's not part of the education, but, uh, I'll have a lot of guys reach out to me and they'll be like, look, we found that, you know, doing X, Y, and Z thing is going to change this for your physical outcome. And then I'm like, okay, send me the article. And then I go and read it. It's like in mice models. And I'm like, already <laughs> immediately, I'm like, Hey man, do not send this to your battalion surgeon. Start begging him to, you know, buy you those shoes or <laughs> get you that type of water or, you know, whatever the intervention is like, cause it just doesn't, you can't correlate that at all. Uh, so I think medics fall in that trap that, and I'd say they fall in the title trap the most. Uh, I mean, even as someone who has a sexy title, right, is it time to change the triad to the diamond? Very provocative. I've watched people fall into the trap of our own paper. And um, I have to constantly be on social medias and stuff telling people that our data is retrospective, that we don't have the answer to the full question yet. So even as the super biased lethal diamond guy, like um, I even know that we kind of set the trap with our title. Uh, so yeah, I'd say the trap is definitely in the title. And then definitely in the abstract. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I think part of that problem is like, it's so hard to find any good research when it comes to pre-hospital, just pre-hospital, let alone pre-hospital, you know, military kind of focused type research. Like there's very, very, very little. Um, like, why is it so freaking hard? <laughs> yeah, I'd say there's a couple of things to that. So one, I think the people who are doing the pre-hospital medicine are not taught to do research. It's not part of the curriculum. I think civilian and then especially for military, I know for sure it's not part of the curriculum. And research seems impossible, right? It doesn't seem like something you can touch. It seems like something you need a MD or DO or PhD next to your name to even be a part of. You know, you read some of these studies, that's all you see, you see littered in there or, and, you know, graduate degrees, whether it's nursing or physician or physician assistant or scientist. And you're like, well, what's the point? That's, that's not something I can access or obtain. 
So that's that's problem one. It's lack of education that anybody can do this. I'd say number two is to do solid research, depending on what you're trying to aim for, right? So even just in general, I'd say what we struggle with now, even when you read a lot of these big JTS studies, is the database what variables were put into the database and then who has access to that database and who can and who manages it so if you don't put blood pressure in a database and i'm not saying gts did this because they definitely didn't but if you don't put blood pressure in a pre-hospital database no and you you automate you automate the uploading process of the data say from a zoll or some type of uh, machine then the variable is never collected Right. So that's another issue is database management, database uh, collection. And then the other issue with pre-hospital medicine being put into good research is you have to and it, you have to control for the environment in order to not have a bunch of co-founding and mediating variables. So it's like, how do I control for the environment? How do I guarantee that the procedure is going to be conducted the same way every time in the back of an ambulance? or the back of a bird or whatever your environment is like the ER or the OR or the microscope or whatever it is, right? There's not a lot of practices or policies in place that establish that type of um, procedures for someone to conduct research in a pre-hospital environment. And I mean, we see it all the time with our community, man, like we're always having this discussion in so many different chat rooms and so many committees about how do we enhance pre-hospital research and, I'd say, lastly, this might be the most important barrier is collect. It, it, probably iterating it again, but collecting that data. Um, it's collecting data and then getting somebody to manage it and care about it, and then being able to extrapolate it truly. Um, so yeah, I kind of repeated myself on the data part, but just it, it came back to me, and I'm just like, that's the conversations we're having the most to this day. Right, and I mean, it's not like data like a checklist or something abstract like it's your t-tri-c card yep that's the data collection just yeah. fill out your freaking card um right you know, but when, it's the last thing it's you know it's it's uh t-tri-c cards are like exercise it's the first thing people cut when they get stressed out right um i i, I had times where i was terrible at filling mine out uh i probably uploaded only a handful to the jts website because you know i got home not home, but you know, I got back to base or whatever. And I'm like, I got to do all my internal stuff first. And then I got to go upload this thing. And it's like, and I don't have a medical officer to do that for me. And so it's, it's this weird struggle where it's like, should, you know, should there be someone responsible for research in a, in a theater or something? I don't know. But yeah, I mean, it's like, actually, you know, it's like people who go back to academia or something and they're stressed out. The first thing they cut is working out. So it's like the medic version of that is cutting the TTRC card. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I mean, I think it's pretty easy to justify doing it. Yeah. Like I'm literally trying to save somebody's life. I don't have the time to write it down. Um, but yep. that's why they opened up that, um, you know, post, you know, encounter uh, section in the JTS so that within, I think they give you 48 hours um, to submit it afterwards. Yeah. And that's amazing. Um that that's that's actually incredible too because even if you like you forgot something you can at least reach out to the the theater clinic or whatever and get get that info back uh so you, you can upload it just in case like something slipped your mind or a drug dosage or something or an intervention so yeah that's definitely a great method and 
that's just the issue. It's it's us it's us not collecting our data and getting it uploaded. Uh, and then I think the other side of this that we didn't discuss, I mean, the military side, we have military physicians, right? They all care about combat. In the pre-hospital side, civilian, there's only a handful of EMS physicians. It's a very young fellowship. It's a very young uh, community. There's not a lot of EMS physicians. So you have to find people who really care about that pre-hospital side of the world uh, in order to create these policies and processes and publish this type of data. And I don't know if funding is a sexy thing for a lot of pre-hospital stuff. Hmm. Well, I think I think you're right because obviously they don't do lots of it. Um, but regardless, we have to update our own practice, mm-hmm. and we can't necessarily extrapolate um, things from the ICU, things from the ER, things from the OR. It doesn't necessarily translate either the because the environment is different or the gear that if it was in that study we're not able to bring uh to the field right. so how in the absence of being able to essentially recreate this research uh in my, in my practice what else can i do yeah that's a that's a, that's a really good question um as the independent uh, I guess from the shoes of the pre-hospital provider, it I, I still think it's important to read it uh, because you can have good conversations with your medical directors and say, hey, you know, I'm, I don't have, uh, say, an anesthesia team when I'm going to do an intubation, but they still use video laryngoscopy, right? The, the what was the glide scope got really, got really popular, right? So then somebody extrapolated that and turned it into a pre-hospital video laryngoscopy device. So things like that are a really good example of how you can take in-hospital research and still apply it to your environment and say, okay, well, they had such a high success rate with video in the ER. Maybe I can test, uh, you know, we can do an easy, that's an easy one to test in a pre-hospital system. Look at all the cardiac arrests, see who got tubed, and then see if the success rate of, well, then you have to report it, but see if there's a higher success rate between video versus manual or a direct, sorry, versus direct laryngoscopy. Like that's a real world example that has happened. Uh, so it's it's so important, I think, to still read up on the literature, even if it's not directly related to the ambulance or the helo or the ground. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's always worth reading about, um, but just understand you may not be able to essentially recreate that um, environment, those conditions, Uh, with those patients, but you can extrapolate, I think, a lot of information. And then just through discussion with other providers who hopefully have also read this paper, um, can we squeeze any juice out of it that will apply to us? Completely agree. I mean, that's, that's, that's whole blood, right? That's, that's TXA. That's um, a bunch of different interventions that people are using nowadays. Uh, So uh, and it goes both ways, right? Look at tourniquets. I mean, uh, we tourniquets came from combat, and now a bunch of ERs and trauma surgeons are more or are way more comfortable seeing a tourniquet get thrown on uh, for arterial hemorrhage. So it can go both ways. But I, I agree with you. It's it's. I think the best way to, that that it happens, and, and we see this in a lot of the group chats, is 
people read these papers and they'll come up in one of these bigger group chats and they'll just be like, hey, this is what I think about this idea. Can we make it work? And then they do exactly what you just said. It's a big melting pot discussion. People are throwing in all their opinions. And then next thing you know, we either have a solution and conclusion or it ain't going to happen because it's a bad idea. Yeah. I would say in those in those chat rooms, in those discussions, I would say the one thing you really got to be careful of is wrapping up your own uh, ego in it. Uh, yeah. the, the drive to be right can be pretty overpowering. Oh, yeah. Guilty is charged uh, a few times on that one. So I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything you would also like to add that maybe we didn't cover when it comes to you know, medics updating themselves or using research or re- reading research or maybe even getting involved in research? Yeah, um, I think something I, I'm very passionate about is you, especially for the medics and, and the military ones, you can write a paper if you want to write a paper. And the best way to do that is to do a, syst- a systematic or a narrative review. You don't have to be a physician or a scientist to do that. Now, I think it's great to have one as a mentor to guide you along the process because they have a lot more experience with it. But you can do that because it's available by searching on PubMed. You say, hey, I'm interested in uh, podcasts, work, you know, podcast education for um, grades or something like that, right? So then you just go on PubMed and you start searching for pro words, podcasts, grades, education, see what papers come up, create an inclusion criteria, say, I'm only going to include papers that discuss this, and I exclude papers that do that. And then you just, you write about the, you make a table of all the results that those papers found. You write about it, you report it. If it's systematic, there is, it's called a systematic because you have to follow an objective set of criteria. You leave your opinion out of it. And if it's narrative, you get to write about the objective part that the authors did in the results, and then you get to put your entire own opinion on it, which is what Lethal Diamond paper was, right? So um, you don't, you can do that. Anybody can do stuff like that. And it's a really good way to practice reading. It's a really good way to practice scientific writing because scientific writing is very different uh, than writing, I'd say, expository essay or something. And then getting involved in research, that's probably the hardest one unfortunately, because of things like the IRBs, so the institutional review boards. So anytime you're working on human subjects or you're privy to human data, you have to be approved by an IRB because of ethics. So something that myself, I know, Dennis, you've tried to help with this too, and so many other people in the community, we're trying to help medics get access to institutions that will allow them to get on these IRBs and be privy to this data so that we can get more people involved in, in, in academic research uh, and pre-hospital research and stuff. It's just really hard to get past these walls, I'd say. So um, once you're out of the military, though, it gets much easier. <laughs> so if you're curious about that, hit me up um, and we can definitely try and get you on a project or something. It's just very hard when you're on active duty because uh, you're so busy and you have to get onto these IRBs. Yep. Um. Well, uh, we're about a half hour into this. Um, do you, uh, oh, do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, man. I think uh, I think it's pretty straightforward. What we've already discussed. Um, it's not the most exciting topic, but it's a, it's an important one. It's something we keep seeing happening, uh, where people are, like I said, falling for the title trap. 
and I'm always down to help mentor uh, and walk people through the process of being published for the first time. So uh, if anybody wants to, you know, any of the folks out there want to get involved in something like that, we can definitely discuss it. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, that's basically it, man. I don't know any other questions that you have curious about anything. Um, so I had heard you're kind of working with some other guys as far as helping people get into med school or anything like that. Do you want to pump your own stuff? <laughs> um, yeah. So a group of us came together, uh, that we're all applying to med school this cycle. And, and one of them had a really great suggestion. He said, let's just put this in a group chat. And so we, the, you know, the five of us were kind of like the ground zero team. And it was just pure, men, pure mentoring, peer reviewing for like how to study for the MCAT, which is a medical college admissions test. And like, how do I write a personal statement for my medical school application? How do I do a secondary essay? How do I do work and activities? Well, I've been lucky through working with Psalm C for, uh, for four years now that I've, we've gotten to talk to a lot of admissions committees on medical school. And we've helped a lot of soft medics get into to medical school uh, or PA school or business school. So this little peer group has grown a lot. Uh, we're actually like 25 deep now. Uh, and we're very proud that we've successfully helped, you know, eight or nine people score above the 90th percentile in the MCAT recently. And that we have very good confidence that we're going to help a few of them get into med school too, the ones that are applying. And it's for us, by us. Uh, so basically, there is kind of the good old boy system. There's a little bit of vetting that goes involved. And basically, if you want to get involved in the mentoring, you have to be ready to apply to medical school. This isn't like a, I'm going to join this chat and lurk for four years or, hey, I'm thinking about medical school. Let me come to your chat. It's for the people who are serious and ready to apply within the year, two years max. And we help you with everything from primary application turning your ribbon rack into the resume, extrapolating your stories into the right conversation, helping you practice for interviews, helping you study for the MCAT. We do peer tutoring for organic chemistry, biochemistry, all the stuff that matters for medical school. So very niche focus. Yeah, perfect. I think that's, that's going to be awesome. And I uh, wish you success with that. Um, also, you said uh, you're starting your own podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, we actually... We launched the first episode the day you and I are recording this, so that's exciting. R-rated science. It's uh, with me and Kate Pate. Kate is a neurophysiologist, so she has a, a PhD, uh, and she's phenomenal. So basically, what we're focusing on over there is it's our we call it R-rated science because we're talking about some of the harder topics uh, that we feel are important to the community that we both get engaged in often or refer to discuss often. So. We're going to be talking about things like traumatic brain injury, uh, busting some of the pseudoscience, doing some journal reviews, and talking about why paper is really great, why one might be really bad. We might do some breaking down some medfluencers who are putting out some bad information that our people are getting caught up in. And we're going to do interviews with some really fantastic people and talk about their journeys. And so we're going to talk about things like moral injury and mental health and psychedelics and all these all these really hot topics. And I think it's going to be good. It's it, it, the goal is to, to be very community based. Um, so yeah, we're hoping it goes well and we're pumped. Perfect. Well, I'm very glad you got on today. Same man. Appreciate it. It was fun. Cool. For today's podcast, be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, 
Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Out. Boy is waiting there for you.